Our Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis 17. It's also the text for our sermon as we continue our series in the book of Genesis, and also our uh, sub-secondary series for Advent called The Shape of the Sun. We have a sequence of four chapters in which God appears, manifests himself to Abraham. And we are seeing in this the shape of the Christ to come. Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Then I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will, give you, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations." This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation." But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son 
and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15. The Apostle Paul here is dealing with the question of Jewish Christians saying that Gentile Christians first needed to become Jewish in order to be Christian, that is receiving the sign of circumcision and following all of the ceremonial laws. The Apostle Paul says, no, they don't, and here he gives the reason. Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority." In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we seek now in prayer, in response to your word, the presence and working of your Holy Spirit. We ask for your Spirit's presence among us so that we might receive this word by faith and that we might do so despite, over against, overcoming all of our weakness. You know far better than we do that which would keep us from hearing and receiving from your word what we need. And so we ask for your sovereign power and work among us by your Spirit, so that we might see our Lord Jesus Christ, be comforted by his speaking to us, and respond with faith and obedience. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the prayer for illumination, 
what I just offered between the scripture reading and the sermon is in many ways one of the simplest, easiest prayers to offer. We are simply asking for the Spirit's work enabling us to hear and receive the scriptures. But it is also often a very difficult prayer because it is a moment of all of us here from all of the different circumstances we are experiencing, all the different ways in which we think about and feel about and experience the world being represented, all of that needing to focus in on this one moment. And that can also feel like a tremendous burden, a weight, a challenge. And so I want to remind us, both by the prayer we've just offered, but now by speaking to us directly here at the beginning, I want to remind us that we come to this with hope and confidence. That when we pray for God to be at work through His Word, we're doing so in response to His promises. We're not doing it because we've made up the idea. We thought, hey, wouldn't this be great if God did that? God has promised us that His Word is living and active, that He is present when His people gather, and we are praying in response to that promise. Well, why does all of that matter? Well, we have a bit of a challenge before us. To get into this text, to hear this text speaking to us, we have to do some theology. And it's going to be some hard work. And as we do that, it is so easy to forget why we are doing this, what we are about as we come to God's Word. We gather here very aware of the darkness in the world, in our own lives, our own experiences, things we see happening around us in the world. And the moment we start doing difficult theology, it can feel very disconnected. All that we are doing is for the sake of Christ and the gospel. That's what we anticipate hearing, and that's what we know we need, not instead of all the darkness we know about, but precisely because of it. Another reason we need this reminder, this comes to us in the midst of a story, a drama, events happening of God's dealing with Abraham, and as we dive into the theology to understand it, we can forget it is a story. And so I want to admit up front that yes, we're going to be wrestling with some difficult things, but let's remember together it is for the sake of the gospel, and let's remember together that it is in the midst of a story of God's dealing with his people. At this moment in the story, God is again here for the third main time renewing his covenant promises with Abraham. It is an event of covenant renewal. God meets with Abraham to declare his promises and to describe for Abraham the life of response to those promises. The promises aren't new, but they are developing. We're going to look at this moment of covenant renewal in this story in three parts. First, the grace of the covenant. Second, the sign of the covenant. And then third, the shape of of the covenant. Remembering, we're asking a question throughout the series of the shape of the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. First then, the grace of the covenant. I said we need to remember this is a story. Verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. Look at the previous verse. The last thing that happened, Abram was 86 years old. Now, you know, if you've been with us in the series, part of the drama of the story is that God is promising Abraham descendants, and he and Sarai are past the age of having children. And that is part of the drama of what God is promising. 
The previous story was Abram and Sarai going in a wrong direction in their own efforts to try to make that promise come true instead of trusting God to do it. We can, we can say with a fair bit of confidence, they've learned a lesson, okay, God's done things in his grace to help them learn that lesson, to turn them to faith in him, and then he is silent for 13 years. That is perhaps the most dramatic part of this story, is the gap between those two verses. Have you ever thought, wow, if I lived in Bible times, all of this would be so much easier? No. The weird things happening in the Bible were weird then. They were not the norm. It wasn't just like a thing that God is appearing to people all the time. Abram himself was special, unique amongst the people. And even for Abram, God appearing to him was a very unique, distinct occurrence. He has gone through 13 years of nothing happening. Now, God in his grace appears to him again. Verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Here is what we call covenant renewal. God says, I am God Almighty. Ah, why might that matter? Well, what is Abram wondering? Can God do what he promised? And so God announces, here's my promise. I've promised it, and I'm able to do it. I will do it. And then he describes the response to that. Walk before me and be blameless. From here on out, God simply renews his promises. He tells Abram that it is an everlasting covenant with him, that he will have a multitude of nations come from him. And he promises Abram that he will receive, his family will receive the land of Canaan, verse 8, for an everlasting possession. These are not new promises. He's renewing them, descendants and the land. And then he adds circumcision as the sign of the covenant, by which Abram's household will be marked as belonging to the covenant people, as being recipients of the promise. And God gives those beautiful words, Verse 9, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And then the rest of the account, verses 15 through 21, uh, God affirms this is going to be through Sarah. So remember, that was the great anxiety in the previous chapter. How is this going to happen? God waits 13 years and then says, oh, it's going to be through Sarah. You're going to have this child, Isaac. And he says, Isaac will be the one from whom the promise comes. And then, verses 22 through 27, we're told that Abram does what God told him to do. His household is circumcised. In the movement of the story, the big main thing that's happening is very simple and clear. God is graciously renewing his promises to Abram. He is sustaining Abram's faith along the way of faithfulness to those promises. Big picture, it's really simple. But as we zoom in to the particular questions of what is happening here and of what God says, we have some challenges. What did I call this first point? The grace of the covenant. Okay, listen again to these words. I am God Almighty, verse 1, walk before me and be blameless. How do we hear this? How do we understand this? God says in the way of the covenant, he says to Abram, you are called to walk before me and be blameless. What do we do with this? 
Do we say this is a burden Abraham cannot bear? Do we say this is mere judgment? What is going on with these words? We're going to spend some time on this question. Some of you may know, and if you don't, it doesn't matter. I'm going to raise this question for you. Some of you may know there is a question about how the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Israel in the time of Moses fit together. And there are many who want to emphasize Abraham and Moses are different. And at face value, we can see some differences. They will say that Abraham is all about promise and God's grace. Some will even go so far as to say the covenant with Abraham is simply unconditional. There's no talk of conditions. And they'll say over against that, Abraham is all about promise and grace. Over against that, when you come to Moses, what do you find? All sorts of laws and commandments. You get the Ten Commandments, you get Leviticus, you get Deuteronomy, all sorts of instructions. And many, even in Reformed circles, will draw a divide to say Moses is doing something different than what God was doing with Abraham. Abraham was about promise, Moses is about commandments and law. They'll often even say things like, what God told Moses and all of that law stuff was really just about Israel and the land. What really matters is the shape of the covenant with regard to Abraham. That's the part that really applies to us in the New Testament. I say nonsense. And I say nonsense on the basis of this text. It is with Abraham that God says, walk before me and be blameless. This is simply a summary of what God would say to his people at every moment in the way of the covenant. That the covenant demands, requires the response of obedience that flows from faith. God says to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. God says to Abraham in verse 9, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you. He says in verse 14, for anyone who does not keep it, and he who does not do circumcision like they're being commanded to do, he shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Right here in Abraham, it is clear that God's people are called to walk before him and be blameless, to keep the covenant, and if they don't, there is the threat of being cut off. In fact, if we look more closely at Moses, we find all the same emphasis of grace and promise that we have in Abraham. The Ten Commandments begin... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God gives his law to Israel in the context of grace. The law given to Israel is never a way of earning or discerning something, deserving something. It is only ever the life of gratitude in response to what God has already done for his people. God's way in the covenant has never changed. It begins with promise and grace. It is promise and grace all the way through. And in that life, in that context of promise and grace, God calls his people to a life of obedience. We cannot get out of, we cannot theologically evade, avoid the fact that what God says here to Abram, he says to us, walk before me and be blameless. The New Testament, in fact, speaks this way. Now, I know some of us aren't worried about this question. I'm going to come around and you know, hopefully convince you this all matters. But we need to be clear about this. That the covenant speaks with one voice. And it speaks clearly regarding grace. And it speaks clearly regarding our obedience. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. All of this walk before me and be blameless stuff. 
Isn't that, that's, that's Old Testament, right? In the New Testament, it's all grace. That's, that's works and obedience. That's strange and weird. In the New Testament, it's all grace, right? Luke 1. In Luke chapter 1, we are being introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are being promised the birth of John, who would be John the Baptist. Zechariah and Elizabeth are introduced to us in verse 5, and then we are told this, Luke 1 verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So here's how the New Testament speaks. It looks at an ordinary believer and says, here is someone who is righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. How can it speak that way? What does it even mean? Does it mean Zechariah and Elizabeth never sinned? Of course not. That's impossible. We know they were sinners. They messed up all the time. Abraham was a sinner. So what does it mean when Zechariah and Elizabeth are said to be holy and blameless, righteous, walking in all the commandments? In fact, if you've been formed by debates over Reformed theology, all you think you're supposed to say is total depravity, total depravity. We're always so terrible and bad. It's not how the Bible speaks. Luke 1 just happily described an ordinary covenant member as righteous and blameless. Total depravity is our state in Adam. We are not only in Adam, we are in Christ. And in Christ, even our works are sanctified. So we can look to Genesis 17, verse 1, walk before me and be blameless, and say, what is God calling Abram to do? He is calling him to live by faith. Faith Receiving the promises of God, faith translates into how we live. When God says, you shall keep my covenant, what is he telling Abraham to do? To live by faith, and that that faith will be seen in how he lives. Indeed, the covenant includes all of the sacrifices, which are the promise of forgiveness. Keeping the covenant simply means looking to the grace of those promises. Moses, Abraham, David... The new covenant in Christ, all of them fully agree. It is all grace and promise. In the context of that grace and promise, God calls us to new life, to walk before Him, to enjoy the life of fellowship with Him. We don't do it perfectly, but in Christ, in that covenant relationship, our works are sanctified so that God is genuinely pleased with you. And He is pleased with you because He views you in Christ. Now, we could go on and on theologically about how this works, how Moses and Abraham and all of these fit together so beautifully and perfectly. Why does that matter? It matters that you must not, we may not, we dare not use theology to avoid the clear scriptural commands to live a certain way. We must not use theological distinction to somehow evade the force of God's word saying, walk before me and be blameless. What does that blamelessness mean? It means the life of faith, a life oriented toward God, a life that repents, that seeks forgiveness, that turns to him in faith. Walking before him is simply fellowship with him. We must not use theological distinction to avoid the clear commands of scripture. And I worry that at times... We can be tempted by that, to use, to, 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 to sort of pit against each other things that the Bible says. 
No, the, the commands of Scripture come to us in the context of grace, and therefore they speak to us. But there's another thing we must say. Never, never hear those commands apart from God's grace. Never hear them as though God is saying, now you have to go do your part. Or as though God is saying, now you have to be good enough for me. You have to earn something. It is very clear that all this is generated by God's promise, equipped by God's promise, sustained by God's promise. And we are also tempted, the moment we realize, oh man, I do need to take seriously the commands, to then do so in a legalistic way. To spin off and hearing it apart from God's grace. It is so hard in the way we talk about these things to always balance that or keep it together. And so one of the things I want to emphasize is that it's not a matter of balancing. God's word speaks one thing. It speaks the covenant. And in that covenant grace, there is a life that God gives in that grace. And all of it is gift. All of it is good all of it is grace. And in the way we speak with each other, that must be clear. The mode, the tone and tenor of it. If we hear that rightly, then we can hear God as a gracious gift saying, walk before me and be blameless. The life of faith in God's covenant promises. And perhaps the most important reason that this matters is that God's ways are one. They are united God has not changed. The covenant of grace is one. It is united throughout Scripture. And so that all that God reveals about himself at any point in Scripture is what he reveals for you. And so you may turn to all of God's word, though portions are more difficult than others, all of God's word, certain that it is God's covenant grace for you as his church in Christ. Well, second, that whole approach of emphasizing the unity of Scripture then raises delightfully interesting questions when it comes to the sign of the covenant. Secondly, the big new thing in this covenant renewal ceremony is that God gives to Abraham the sign of circumcision by which his household will be marked off as part of the covenant people. It all sounds wonderfully strange when we are reading through it even a bit difficult at points. And as we were doing that, we have to remember that actually the practice was not strange even at that time. God was simply saying this practice, which people knew about, is going to be the way by which this family is marked off. When we talk about the unity of Scripture, we just read Colossians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul said that all that God promised in circumcision, you have in Christ it pointed to Christ so that now that the Christ is here, that sign is no longer needed. And in fact, the promise that you have all of those things is baptism. So Paul refers to the circumcision made without hands, Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. And he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul says to the church, that whole sign that God gave to Israel pointed to Christ. Now that Christ is here, it is not needed. Baptism is now the thing that promises that you have all of that. The Reformed summary of that is that baptism has taken the place of circumcision as the sign of the covenant. Okay, some of you might complain, and you should. Aren't, isn't that preaching Colossians 2 instead of preaching Genesis 17? Yes, it is. And we shouldn't do that. So let's not do that. Okay, we hear Colossians 2, it alerts us to something. Why was Paul so certain about that? 
Genesis 17 itself signals that this is, something, this is about something more than Abraham and his family. Now, you know the debates. Many of you know the claims. Some will say, look, God said to Abraham, verse 7, this is an everlasting covenant. Didn't you just say, using Colossians 2, nope, never mind, it's not. Now, you need to feel the force of this. The objection is real. They will say, look, Genesis 17 says it's an everlasting covenant. You just use Colossians 2 to say, no, it isn't. And then they will then want to say, Genesis 17 therefore means that ethnic Israel still has a special purpose in God's plan because, look, he said everlasting covenant, even about the land, everlasting possession. There are those who worry, even among those of us who affirm that Colossians 2 means all this is being fulfilled in Christ. There are those who worry that we are not taking seriously enough the language of everlasting covenant and everlasting possession. But here is the thing. There is already a pattern in Genesis of God's promises in covenant renewal going deeper and deeper into those promises. God showing more and more of just what he means by them. A broadening, a deepening of what is happening in and through them. When we come to the time of Moses, what will happen? More being revealed about what God is doing through the covenant, what it looks like. When we come to David, more. There's a pattern in the Old Testament itself of the promises deepening and growing and revealing more of just what God had in mind all along. And doing so in a way that has continuity throughout. If the claim is, if someone wants to say, what God said to Abraham was just about biological descendants of Abraham, that is contradicted by this very chapter. Who did God say to Abraham should receive the sign? Not just those who are born to him, but it says even those who are bought with money from foreigners. Now set aside the question of buying, that of course all sounds strange, but the point is this, even those in his household who were not his biological descendants received the sign of the covenant. Fascinating, isn't it? In fact, the Old Testament is full of accounts of Gentiles, those from the nations, being included within the covenant people. Many of them included even in the line of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does this chapter say that those who are not biologically of Abraham can be included in the covenant... It also says those who are not faithful to the covenant, verse 14, will be cut off. They are no longer part of it. God from the very beginning sets up that it is never about biology. It was never about simply an ethnic family. It was always about God's promises and always about faith in those promises. And it is precisely these things that the apostles will point to and show that God was always anticipating the inclusion of the nations, not replacing Israel, not instead of Israel, but Israel and the nations together, the church of Jesus Christ simply being the covenant people of God, the Israel of God. The church just is the nations included in Israel. My point is this, that is signaled by this text in particular. That God from the beginning was anticipating you being included in his covenant people. God from the very beginning was anticipating the nations, the Gentiles, being included within this thing that he was doing. That was not a plan B, it is not a change, it's not replacing or superseding Israel. It was always God's plan for Israel. So that 
the apostles preaching on the day of Pentecost say, the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, that is the nations, those who would turn to the Messiah being included within that covenant. God's covenant grace has not narrowed. It has widened. And this is why then in the Reformed tradition, we have seen this as directly relating to why our children receive the sacrament of baptism. Because God's pattern from the beginning was that the promise is to you and to your offspring, to you and to your children. God's ways are one. He has not changed. What he has done is he has included the nations in that, but as what he was always planning to do. So that we can now announce that we are recipients of that wideness of God's grace. We are recipients of the life God called Abraham to. I was struck in the reading, and I I love when this happens. I pick the New Testament reading for one reason, and then something else jumps out as we are reading it. So why did we pick that New Testament reading? Because it tells us baptism is the fulfillment of circumcision. Ah, but the first verse of our reading, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The very language of God's covenant with Abram. The very language of God's covenant with Israel through Moses. As you receive these things, it is a promise what God has done in Christ. It now flows then into how you live, how you walk. And all of it, beginning, middle, and all throughout, is grace. Paul is saying, not there's this new thing happening. He's not saying, with hindsight, we can look back and see, man, I guess this was pointing to Christ somehow. He's saying this was always the intention, what the Old Testament text was always about, that you are included in that covenant grace. Now, I warned you this was a whole bunch of theology. I know that. What was the payoff of the first point? The covenant is all promise, and it calls for the response of faith that translates into how we live. What's the point to the second point? That the sign of the covenant proclaims abounding grace to us as the covenant people, the nations included, and then grace to our children in the covenant, included as recipients of all of those promises. All of that then, I pray, enables us to see it is our Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us in and through all of these things. The shape of the covenant, all that we have said, just is the shape of the Son. S-O-N, the eternal Son of God, the Logos, making himself known, revealed in these texts. And brothers and sisters, we've done all that hard work. Where does this, where does this arrive? Behold Christ. In the great change from circumcision to baptism, what is the big main thing that changes? There is no longer any bloodshed. And in the bloodshed of the event happening in this text, y'all noticed it. In the bloodshed of what was happening in this text was a reminder of what was required, of what our sin required, what our sin does. And in that, there was a promise that despite what our sin does, what is required, life will continue. These things are all continued in the symbolism of the thing being done. All anticipating the day when that bloodshed would end, would not be required. 
Because the eternal Son of God would enter this world with us and would take upon himself all of the darkness, all of the wrath, all of the bloodshed required because of our sin. That being the shape of the covenant, the shape of what is being said to Abraham, is it not striking, beautiful, glorious? Verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abram. This has been a pattern of appearing. We have many reasons to think together with the ancient church that we can associate these appearances in a particular way with the second person of the Trinity, with the Son being the means by which God is being made known to his people in this way of the covenant being revealed. The Son speaking of the required bloodshed that he would later take upon himself in the incarnation for the sake of his people. This is your God. This is the creator being made known, acting at every point on the timeline, consistent with who he is, acting at every point on the timeline, making clear he would do what is needed for your salvation. Why could he so freely say, walk before me and be blameless and have it all be grace? Because the one who said it is the one who would take upon himself the penalty for all of our sin. Why could he say, be blameless, knowing you were going to be a sinner? Because he is the one who would take upon himself that which would make possible the forgiveness every time you repent and look to the same God in faith. Or, the shape of the Son in the promise of a birth to Sarah. Why God's relentless insistence throughout the story of the line of promise, of promising these faithful women, these faithful mothers of the faith, promising them a birth that seems impossible over and over and over. Story after story, where the issue, the drama, is the birth that seems impossible. Sarah here receiving this promise, and she's going to struggle with it. It's going to be difficult. She'll get around to faith. God will get her there. Sarah receiving this promise points to Mary, the one greater than Sarah, who for the sake of the Christ would receive the promise by faith that the one would be born to her, who would fulfill and complete all that God was promising in these things. That in that pattern of the impossible birth promised is the promise of the birth of the Son. And so we can say in that pattern here, God is promising that very event as the means by which he would enter the world and take upon himself the consequences of our sin. Or, perhaps, most easy to neglect, but most importantly, the way in which we see in this account the shape of the Son simply is in God's faithfulness in appearing. God has not abandoned his creation. He has not abandoned men and women made in his image. He has not left us to our rebellion and all the destructive ways in which we turn against him and away from him. He pursues us. He appears, he comes, he speaks, he reveals, he makes known. And he does so by way of revealing relationship. He tells Abraham, walk before me. This is, this is pure love and grace. God's saying he desires fellowship. Never hear this as a burden of rules. 
This is God saying, here is the life that just enjoys fellowship with me. And it's God saying, that's what I made you for. It's what your very existence is aimed at. And God appears. He appears. He appears. He seeks his people. He reveals the life of the covenant. And this is a pattern. This is a relentless pattern, a non-stopping pattern of what God is doing. It is a pattern that culminates, we can say, in the incarnation, in the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God taking our human flesh upon himself, the ultimate union of God with us as his people, and it also reaches into the future. You need this promise right now. Hopefully, my prayer, my prayer is that all that theological hard work, what it did is it cleared away all the barriers to hearing this speaking directly to us. Hear this with all those barriers cleared away as God speaking directly to you. That he is God with us. That he is the one who came to seek and save the lost. That he is the one who pursues his people and that he is doing so for you. Because how often is that not what it looks like? How many of us right now are actually, if we were going to over-identify with Abram, which we have to be sure not to do, by the way, because he was special, unique in his role, but if we were going to over-identify, you'd say, I'm in like year eight of that 13-year period of nothing. That's right. The norm for God's people is that, to have to cling to the promise through that. Don't, Don't see what happens to Abram and think you're missing something. No, God has actually given you more in his presence with you, but in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the clarity of what he has done in Christ. And so in the midst of those times where you realize, actually, if I was mapping myself in this, I'm in year eight of that 13-year stretch is what it feels like, that is where we need this message as the eternal pattern of who God is, as the eternal identity of the Creator, making himself known as Emmanuel, God with us. I've been using the word pattern a lot. There's lots of good words you could use for this idea. A pattern of God seeking his people, meeting with them, appearing to them. One of the things we can call that pattern is covenant renewal. God renews the promises with his people. And this is the promise for us every Lord's Day, that we are gathered here for a covenant renewal. The language of the New Testament for what happens when God's people gather in so many ways draws threads from all of these experiences of the Old Testament and says, converging on the Lord's day with the bread and wine of the feast spread before us, it's God meeting with us to renew his covenant promises, to call us to the life of faith and obedience, and to point us to the promise of Emmanuel in the new creation to come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.